Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 136. We stand ready to A your cues. <laughs> there we go. Okay, we got two questions from the Discord server this week. Every week we uh, ask them to provide us a question. This is the Discord server you can access at either of our Patreons. And because we weren't able to do a Q&A last week, we, we're doing two from them this week. Question number one from the Discord this week is, what do you feed your cat? My vet was offended when I told her I fed mine pumpkin mixed with a variety of human-grade meat. She claimed I needed to include grains and recommended some brands. Does a grain-inclusive diet make evolutionary sense for cats, or is this paralleling some human-grade medical and corporate incentive structures? Well, it is very important that your cat abide by the cat food pyramid. <laughs> cat food yeah. pyramid has meat at the very top, and then more meat and meat and meat and meat. Mm -hmm. um, and then you want to give them something to wash it down with. So, which might be pumpkin. Could be pumpkin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I will. So the idea that a cat needs grain is absurd on its face. Uh, we, in fact, uh, give our cats primarily tuna and pumpkin, canned tuna and canned pumpkin. We just give them a pumpkin. <laughs> Go at it. Um, and, you know, they don't, the pumpkin isn't something, like I can leave the pumpkin open on the counter and they don't go for it, whereas you can't leave tuna open on the counter. You kind of got to mix it for them to eat you it. Gotta, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll eat around the pumpkin, but they don't, they don't mind it, but you got to mix it in. Um, that said, uh, our 11-year-old cat, Tesla, our panther, once when he was younger, got himself locked in a neighbor's house for 10 days. The neighbor uh, was not as daft as they seem from that story. They were, in fact, out of town, although we did call them and were like, is it possible our cat is like, nope, certainly not. Anyway, uh, after 10 days, it became clear, and I think we've said this on air before, that uh, Tesla had survived by finding all of the bread that the neighbors had in their house and eating that. And ever since, he has had a propensity for bread, and he is now an older enough cat uh, and was losing weight. And we have found that giving him bread as a supplement is the easiest way to get him to actually gain some weight yeah, in, a, in a good way. He prefers sourdough. He actually prefers Hala. He, it's Hala is his favorite. Is his favorite, and uh, it's also Toby's favorite. And so Toby gets a little bit perturbed when he'll come out with like a half a loaf of sourdough that he's just going to eat. And I'm like, you have to share that with the cat. So this is all going to be very mysterious to people who don't understand why we are doing things like feeding our cats tuna, which is obviously very expensive. Why we would feed them pumpkin when it's not a native part of their diet and all that. So we, we should probably say something about that. Fair enough. A, there are all sorts of pathologies that pets are showing with respect to their food. I now increasingly wonder about adjuvants in the uh, conspicuously large number of vaccinations that are being advised for pets and whether they are triggering food sensitivities in the same way that I wonder if they are triggering food sensitivities in people. The suspiciously large number of repeat vaccinations for pets. I actually... I have not come yet to question any of the particular vaccinations. I mean, depending on what your pet is and where they're being exposed and everything. It's the <clears throat> now once vaccinated, they absolutely need a yearly booster, uh, which, you know, a, a good vaccine, a good vaccine shouldn't require that. And this, this, and I've said this here before too, a, a good vet said this to me a couple of years ago. I was like, why are you giving your cats all the same vaccines every single year? It's a good vaccine, which these are. Uh, they shouldn't, you know, at this point, uh, he said, you know, they, they probably don't need them at all ever again because they're fully vaccinated. Well, I don't, 
I don't know how to call it because it could be that these are garbagey vaccines and they require boosters in order to be effective. I have no doubt that they are being recommended to get vaccines that are not in their net interest. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what we know is we have an interest that makes that we have a uh, an industry that makes money when people recommend or mandate that your pets get vaccines. And of course they are abusing that. So, yeah. you know, that leaves us in the predicament of not knowing what a rational medical program would be for your pet. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, even if it has nothing to do with vaccines, whatever it is, is causing an awful lot of pet owners to face a situation in which their animals become intolerant of the food that they are eating. And if you've experienced this, you know that you then start sourcing more and more exotic proteins that your animal is not yet allergic to. And eventually you may find that there is nothing and your animal will expire from its inability to properly deal with the food that you're giving it. It's a terrible, terrible fate. And as far as I know, it is largely new. So yeah, something never heard of this back in the 70s, 80s. Yeah, that's possible. We didn't know it, but yeah. there's just something about this. So anyway, we have resorted to feeding our animals uh, something that they didn't grow up on, which was tuna. Um, and we mix in the pumpkin because one of our animals, uh, our older cat, Tesla, has gastrointestinal issues. And pumpkin, for whatever reason, <laughs> for both dogs and cats, appears to be a curative for both too loose and too hard stools, yep. right? So a little pumpkin, we're just trying to keep keep the gut healthy. And the tuna, uh, so we used to feed dry food, but there's a problem, especially with male cats, where they get crystals in their urine that can block their urethra, and it can actually kill a cat if you don't catch it early. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a way of circumventing all of that, which of course Yes, it's much cheaper to feed your animal uh, whatever garbage food is being distributed. Even even the good stuff has a lot of garbage in it, typically. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, one incident where you rush your pet to uh, an emergency vet and they are kept for forty eight hours eats up many thousands of dollars. And yeah. you know, the alternative putting your uh, euthanizing your animal because you can't stomach the bill is an equally horrifying or more horrifying prospect. So anyway, we are being proactive, spending way more than we would like to be spending on food that we believe to be high quality on a monthly basis. Having having. Uh, not rushed him to the vet or did we did we oh, take Tesla. him he did go but then we are we were able to pull him back before the, the costs mounted too high um because they got him stabilized we're like okay no, we're they were high yeah, they wanted but, to keep him for another 48 hours or yeah. something and we were like no we can handle it yeah. um but <clears throat> anyway so in our cat's case tuna mixed with pumpkin the pumpkin they don't love but they eat and it does appear to be healthy for them um, but no you don't need to give your cats grains they're obligate carnivores and they have become omnivores under uh, their uh, human association so they're capable of dealing with a lot of stuff yep as we are yep uh, we're, we're of course we're, we're omnivores <clears throat> humans are not carnivores um, dogs are more omnivorous uh, you know, wild wolves from which our domestic dogs come uh, have a pretty solidly meat diet. But you know, all of all of our 
pet carnivorans uh, that we domesticate. You, you, if you let them go outside, they'll they'll chew on grass and such. So you know they'll they'll get some sort yeah. of fiber in their in their diets. Yeah, I don't know that they're digesting the grass. Probably yeah, not. Almost certainly not. not That's in fact. fiber. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> I will say though that the key thing to remember when comparing dogs and cats is dogs have had something like thirty thousand years of. Uh, evolution under domestication by far the longest of any domesticated creature the uh, you know by three times because the other domesticated creatures were all subsequent to farming dogs not they were hunting partners and so that's an awful lot of time to um, adapt to humans obviously there wouldn't have been a lot of grain involved in hanging out with humans until Farming increased yeah, the rate. They're, they're, no, there actually, was some, there was yeah. some wild har harvesting, obviously. Yeah, but. no, and there's, I mean, there's evidence. I think it's in, it's in one of the Chinese origins of of agriculture places. I can't remember if it's north or south, and maybe one other place uh, where you have evidence of bread baking many thousands of years before any evidence of agriculture. Yeah. So there is grain use uh, and and grain grain preparation before agriculture, but it's not going to be at the scale. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was hit and miss because it's a low product productivity activity because the harvesting is so hard and yeah. because the grain itself is not evolved to uh, divide. So you throw away most of the harvested grain. It's mm -hmm. the inedible uh, fiber and you recover only the, the endosperm. And the point is under domestication, there's evolution for those two things to separate cleanly, right? Mm -hmm. It's in the plant's interest to serve the people. Um, but before domestication, it's a very labor-intensive, low-productivity um, uh, mode of, of getting calories. So anyway, dogs eat most of the things that people eat, and they yeah. do pretty well on most of them. There are some weird exceptions like grapes. Chocolate. Chocolate. Um, yeah. But for the most part, um, you know. Yeah, grapes is a weird one. It is a weird one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so that's the long and short of it. All right. Second question from the Discord this week. Do you agree with Ian McGilchrist that since the Renaissance, our collective left-brained logical and rules-based thinking has brought us to a place where our ability to reason intuitively has been seriously reduced? I truly wonder if it's retrievable in a super high-tech world. I would say um, <laughs> it is intuitively... Hmm. Uh, a match for my understanding, but that this problem has gotten yeah. precipitously worse in the last 50 years. That the degree to which people yeah. in their ordinary interactions with the world are not confronted by systems that are in and of themselves sensible, mm -hmm. right? There's a certain amount of sensibleness that arises naturally just by interacting with, uh, you know, non computerized cars, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and oh, physical systems of any sort. Physical. Right? Well, the problem is, you know, a Tesla is a physical system, but it's a physical system with so much arbitrary. Non-electronic. Yeah, non pre-electronic is much more physical logical. Systems. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so yes, I would say there's a long-standing problem, and that there is a much more precipitous, more recent problem. Now, I don't agree with. I think this is not McGill, Chris. This is the person asking the question. But I do not agree that um, it isn't reversible. I think it's readily reversible. And he doesn't say reversible. He says, I truly wonder if it's retrievable in a super high-tech world. Well, I think, I think it is, it is retrievable mm -hmm. if we are deliberate about it. We know, and this is one of the things that Heather and I wrote about in our book, it's one of the things we frequently talk about, 
educationally, but we effectively know what you need to be exposed to developmentally in order to develop those intuitions. Mm -hmm. And the question is, are we going to put kids to those tasks or are we going to um, continue to do whatever bizarre rituals we do in school and pretend that the end all and be all of being smart is making the teacher happy. Right. Which it's not. All right. Questions that came in are coming in still at darkhorsesubmissions.com. <clears throat> First question. the top of the list, so I'm going to read it, but I'm not totally sure what the question means. All right. That's my, that's my caveat. All life comes from life. So is the environment not alive or of life? Purpose of life seems to be manipulation at an elemental degree. Free will. How to get something from nothing. Any thoughts? How do we find unity? Yeah. A, too many things jammed into one question. I will okay. say uh, all life comes from life is a great rule of thumb that cannot be true as an actual law. Because obviously, yep. that's got to start somewhere. Right. Um, I would say defining life is tough, but unimportant. It's not, it's not crucial that we have an exact boundary. Um, but the key thing is adaptation, which is the thing that life does that pre-life does not, is an elaboration of something very common in the pre-living universe. So we have selection creating patterns and that every, everything you can see and comprehend, anything you can notice is a pattern. It's the result of some kind of selection. That itself is not life. If you add to selection some kind of heredity, then you get selection compounding itself. And ultimately, if you get enough of it, you'll get adaptation. And so the point is that's the real distinction between the living world and the pre-living world is the adaptation. And so there is a hint of what becomes adaptation, which is selection, in everything else that exists absent life. But only once that process starts self-catalyzing do you get things that are clearly alive. And anyway, I think that addresses at least the first part of your question. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, the earth... As a, as a unit, is not alive. Uh, the Earth has many things in it uh, that are alive that most observers would not recognize as being alive. But, you know, the environment. What, environment. What, the environment um, taken, you know, to, you kind of define environment, but if we're talking about, for instance, a seashore, an intertidal uh, environment, Alive, not alive. Part of it is alive. Part of it is not. And so, you know, the example that you have um, that you have given that is most clean about uh, the effects of selection on non-living systems is the way that uh, the tides sort rocks by size, so that you end up um, um, along along a rocky seashore. You can reliably find, uh, you know, a, a, along a um, regularly tidal rocky seashore, you find effectively. Um, rocks sorted by size, and that is a selective process, but not an adaptive one. 
similarly, though, you find organisms in the sand burrowing at different depths uh, by virtue of how long their breathing spout is or what it is that they're eating or, you know, any number of things. And in their cases, that is an adaptive process. Yep. Uh, so selection in both cases, adaptive in one where the organisms are alive, non-adaptive in the other where the things, not organisms, rocks, for instance, are not alive. Um, but I would say there's a confusion in the question, potentially. Um, let's say that we took a ecosystem in which many things were alive. Mm -hmm. The ecosystem still isn't alive. Right. Um, because the ecosystem doesn't adapt. Yep. Uh, so the many things in it uh, are alive and don't conflate the fact that there's a lot, whole lot of living stuff in some amorphous thing as the same process. Yes. It's, it's not. Yeah. Uh, speaking of alive, mm. there is a uh, an eleven year old miniature panther approaching that seems who seems to have a lot to say. Yes. So apologies for those listening with cats in their environs, wondering if their cats are talking. No, nope, that's ours. <laughs> uh, he heard all the talk about tuna and wants yes. some. I imagine he was rather indifferent to the talk about pumpkin. Yeah, dude, chill out. Okay. One. Is there a reason to prefer, for instance, stronger symptoms over two days versus milder, milder symptoms over 10 days for a respiratory virus like COVID or like SARS-CoV-2? Uh, two, we don't normally expect respiratory viruses to peak in summer. There have been large COVID-19 peaks summer each year. Is this plausibly from serial pathogen in a lab environment? Well, let's take the last one first. Yeah. Yes, I think many of the things about yeah. the virus that behave in a, in a surprising way are the result of the fact that we selected, presumably selected for certain things in that environment and accidentally for many, many other things, including uh, tropism, meaning a ability to infect many different tissues, ability mm -hmm. to jump between species. Yep. Um, so yes, I would say be alarmed, be very alarmed about the fact that this thing does not behave normally with respect to seasons. It's, it's a troubling, it's a troubling fact and it may ultimately settle into a normal pattern, but, um, this, this does feel like a, <clears throat> a self-inflicted wound. Your first yes. question raises, uh, very interesting yeah, I have yeah. to say raises very interesting questions, which is not a good way to say it. But right. but and, and just to remind, this is, you know, is there a reason to prefer? Like, should we, should individuals presumably have a preference for like, okay, I'm going to be really, really sick for two days or I'm going to be a little sick for 10? Yeah, my suspicion is at the level of harm, you're dealing with an area under the curve phenomenon where basically the question is how net sick were you? And that, you know, the same amount of sick distributed over more time um, versus less time is equivalent. And so there's a question about, uh, there's a question about, is that true? There's a question about- yeah, I don't about, think it can be that simple though in all systems. Well, right? Because not, for, for some systems there will be an acute, there will be damage at very sick levels that you wouldn't experience at lower levels. Yep. There's right? definitely a- place at which that model will break yeah right intense enough sickness can kill you so for example right. if you take a sickness bad enough to kill you and you distribute it over a month rather than a week yeah and it doesn't kill you obviously that's preferable right um <clears throat> but then there's also the question about what the net 
immunity that is produced is. Mm. And mm -hmm. I can actually see arguments in both directions. But likely the fact, if it is a pathogenic illness, let's say it's a virus that we're talking about, and you are sick, you are symptomatically sick, and you then recover, that is presumably the result of the fact that you have successfully marshaled an immune response. And then the question is, has that immune response triggered memory su sufficient to fend that disease off again? And the question is, is it ever distinct, such that a brief illness is too short mm. to get that memory, and a longer illness, even if it was less intense, would have done so, or vice versa? Right. Right. And I don't know the answer, but that's yeah. how I would no, I could see it. I could see it going either way, honestly. Yeah. An intense illness that was very brief. It, it remains unclear you know, why the recovery happened, but it uh, might have been too brief to prompt immune response. And then a, a very low-level illness that just doesn't, none of the relevant immune cells run into the thing. Um, and, and you just... <clears throat> well, you know, you could get a an illness that triggered antibody response sufficient to defeat it without generating T-cell immunity, for example. But I, I, I don't think either of these things are likely because basically yeah. what you've got is an illness sufficient to decrease your capacity. Mm -hmm. That is a matter of concern for the immune system. So the immune system has every uh, advantage if it does learn the formula for whatever pathogens have caused that to happen, whether it was a long or a short illness. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that you've gotten sick and then got well pretty strongly indicates if this is a natural pathogen that you will have uh, immunity to that version. Now, it may be that the pathogen is then so rapidly evolving that your immunity isn't that useful because it's out of date a year later. Yep. Um, but but that's the basic thing. Yes, you probably have immunity to that disease in either case. Yeah. All right. Me. So I have not seen this question before it came in <clears throat> later. Um, <clears throat> me. That's the wrong definition. Them. So what? Language evolves. <clears throat> Unlike CPU programming, not every redefinition is versioned and backwards compatible. People who redefined, who redefine rather than adding new words, punish using original derivation and thus punish coherence and consistency. It can be intentional. Is there a dictionary which cannot deform definitions of pre-existing words? So I, th I think they're, they're trying to write within a tight limit. And so I was trying to make yeah. that into full English. Well, <clears throat> natural evolution of language must continue to be allowed. Of course. The gaming of the evolution of language for political purposes must not be allowed. Yeah. And the key, you know, Wikipedia has the right idea. Presumably, changes in Wikipedia do always leave a record. Mm -hmm. So somebody who wanted to figure out what happened to a definition that got politicized could, in principle, do so. Um, and, you know, there's no reason that in, in the electronic era, even to the extent that some definition needs to change, and, you know, many of our most important definitions change, right? The, the term gene, for example, mm -hmm. has radically shifted over our lifetime because it had to, because the original definition was simply not up to the job. Yep. 
Um, <clears throat> but there should be a bias against changing definitions. There should certainly be a bias against changing definitions uh, in the heat of a battle, right? That is going to tend yeah. to be political. Uh, and it yeah. should always leave a record so we can retrace our steps. There should effectively be a git mode where you can mm. fork a definition, you can go backwards, you can reestablish an earlier version that worked. Yeah. That sort of thing. No, that's that sounds like the right way to go about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think uh, that increasingly, just as many of the trans activists have found a few biologists who are willing to jump on and say, oh, yeah, it's sex isn't binary, and use them as sort of, you know, armor and weaponry. Uh, I think this, you know, so what language evolves response uh, is also the result of those people, those sophists, honestly, uh, basically grabbing linguists, um, a few linguists who are, who are willing to say, well, of course, language evolves and not sort of <clears throat> maybe not realize, or in a few cases, maybe be interested in, in helping the decay. But just, you know, many, many good people will think that they are uh, standing strong for something that is actually obvious within their field, uh, language evolves without realizing they're actually being used as a tool in a battle they did not wish for. Right. Um, I think I got it. Mm -hmm. This is one of those cases where we say evolves when what we mean is adapts. And the point is language adaptation should increase the utility of language. Too often what happens is because it's politicized, it decreases the utility of language. We lose the ability to say basic things that we could say before mm -hmm. and that that is the hallmark of bad evolutionary trends, right? Um, it's like linguistic eugenics where somebody <laughs> is selecting for certain uses of terms that serve their interests rather than that serve us collectively in communicating. Okay. So take that. Wow. Yeah, well, you got Tessa's attention. Yes, well, yes, I did. Okay. Um, I saw a video of a clam swimming. Found it cute. Also, there's a sea snail that incorporates iron into its shell and survives temperatures above 700 degrees Fahrenheit. In the shade. No. <laughs> Any favorite bivalves or bivalve facts? Now, wait a minute. Do you know of clam swimming? I certainly know of scallops doing it. Is a scallop not a kind of clam? Well, that's a good so question. A snail's though, not right? a bivalve, right? No, a snail is a monovalve. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but a clam is. A clam is a bivalve. A scallop is a bivalve. Is a scallop a clam? And is this person therefore justified if that what they saw was indeed a scallop swimming? And they are cute when they do it. Yeah. Um, or have they aired slightly i don't think it much matters let's assume that i don't know about... i i know very little about my invertebrate um invertebrate phylogeny um yes well uh, a first a first look suggests uh, that while both bivalves not necessarily um in the same group I'm just going to go a little deeper here. You're going to go a little deeper. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
we are going to find out whether or not there is a yeah. branch of the phylogenetic tree that no, you can No, I'm in, you know, the famous journal Molecular Marine Biology and Biotechnology here with a comparison of molluscan phylogenies based on paleontological molecular data, but it's, it's going to take me a little time. Really? To, yeah. They're not going to throw you a phylogeny that you can quickly... Yeah. Yeah, because I just don't even, I just don't know the groups we're talking about. Um, but really, back in '93, you already had fully sequenced. That seems Gina? improbable. Well, anyway. Yeah. Oh wait, no, just the the 18s rRNA gene from three scallop species and seven matrid clam species have been fully sequenced. So just one gene. This that that's that sounds like the '90s. Yeah, yeah that sounds, I remember the name. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> Phylogenetic analysis has supported the scheme of Waller for the pectinidae, but conflict with but conflict with current evolutionary concepts and classification within, within the Mactridae. Um, so at least, yeah, at at least as of a long time ago at this point, um, early mid nineties, you had them being sister but distinct. Sister but distinct, but which like, raises the very question we just talked about last time. Totally. Um, <clears throat> so yeah. what you probably saw was a scallop swimming, and that is not technically a clam, though you could make an argument for the whole group being clams, uh, which wouldn't change the biology. In any case, maybe what you saw was a clam swimming, and we don't know about that behavior, in which case I'd love to see it. If they're sister, yes. you could similarly make an argument for the whole group being scallops. Oh, yes. Equally so. Equally so. And all you got to do is figure out which of these things you're going to stick with and make it clear to everybody what you've done. And it's mm -hmm. biologically all right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, any favorite bivalves or bivalve facts? Favorite bivalves. Yeah, that's what the question actually was. The, 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 the militant moderate here did not wish to be challenged on uh, his or her uh, phylogenetic analysis. Really? Yeah. Really? But I think, I think they, that's right, can take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, favorite bivalve. I mean, probably it is the scallop on or the scallop. I've the now, scallop, the mighty scallop. Like saying the bat, um, <laughs> probably worse than saying the bat. Oh but anyway. no, I no. I I think knowing very little about invertebrate phylogenetics, that there are more species of bat than there are of scallops. Really? Yes, yes, I do. More than a thousand species of scallop. No, I think the opposite. I think there are more species of bat than there are of scallop. You were arguing that there are more species of scallop than there are of bat. Right, right. I spoke wrongly, but I knew what you said. <laughs> yeah. I agree, but I, I agree with about what you said. I think there are likely to be more scallop species than than bats. But this is scallop sensu stricto. You're not including the clams. No, including the clams and the scallops. Who I would do that. Do that now. I contemplated it. 30 seconds ago, but yeah. so um, now, no. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, uh, different yeah, I think there are likely now. to be more than a thousand species of scallops, and I am prepared to be embarrassed on that front. Um, which I, is, I think it's not going to be anywhere close. Really? Yeah. Just because they all taste alike? I doubt we eat more than a couple of species. I really don't know. <laughs> like I said, you know, we're just, we're, neither of us does invert systematics. Yeah. At all, really? No. Yeah, I mean, until, get, yeah, a little bit over in there. in uh, in insect land, but a just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, probably the scallop on the basis of the swimming that the scallop does so compellingly. They just have oodles of character when they swim. They do. They do have oodles of character. I yeah. I wish something was jumping to mind. Nothing is. Uh, so you know, ask again. Maybe we'll have thought about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the sort of thing I'd like to be thinking about, but. 
Uh, anyway. Ooh. Summer has me wondering about the evolution of throwing. So many sports are based on it. Hopefully this isn't a softball question for you. Ouch. I hear ya. Ouch. Um, well, one thing we can say for sure is that non-ape monkeys aren't going to be very good at throwing. Non-ape monkeys. So. Could be, ah, I see why. Yeah, you do. I think. But do they? I think you do. I think I do. I think you do. You want to you want to say it, or you want me to go there? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb. Go out oh, on a limb, oh, not hang from oh, a limb. Oh God. Okay. Is it because uh, <laughs> the apes are the uh, the brachiators? Yeah. Yeah. We can do this. Yeah. Apes. The, yeah. So that includes gibbons and other gibbons and more gibbons, and including the Siman, which is the biggest gibbon, and then the great apes, which. Uh, we are we are closely related to that clade. So the orangs, uh, the gorilla, and the two chimpy species, and then they are great hunts. apes. Yeah, they are great apes. Um, um, so but, anyway, but then everything, all the other. So we're also monkeys, though, right? Like we're monkeys, we're apes, we're great apes, we're hominines. <laughs> hominines, yes. Hominini is the clade, but uh, we, we're some hominines. of our some of our we critics are hominines. They are. Unfortunately, we all are. Um, but okay, so but, so yeah, this the, the brachiation, um, which is an ape synapomorphy, that is to say, a shared derived characteristic that um, that shows up at the level of of apes, allows for the hand over hand stuff that you see, um, and you know other the other monkeys don't have that. They don't they don't have the ability to do uh, as much of that. Although we tend to think of monkeys kind of swinging through the trees now wait 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 wait, 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 wait. Six, yeah, 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 16 yeah, dozen yeah. different complaints yeah. come to mind okay one they should be ape bars not monkey bars true although so the problem is all apes are monkeys but to, by calling them monkey bars we expect that any monkey could do it and certainly many monkeys cannot however there are monkeys in our experience new world monkeys new world monkeys yeah. that do something that looks to me like radiation yeah i think you know, I haven't, I haven't thought about this in a while, and I think the answer is that they they do a sort of a thing. I, I suspect that they're doing more like this rather than actually swinging. That this, you know, the something yeah. in the shoulder, the something in the uh, the pectoral girdle, and like the rotator cuff allows for this this entire thing, which is then going to be related to throwing, right? Yeah. Which is why we're on this topic. Um, whereas if you look at say a spider monkey, yeah. Um, uh, they're going to be doing. They're going to be doing more like this, um, and you know maybe as much of this, but maybe it's that that they can't do. I'm not even positive. I think um, I've got pictures of them doing something that looks very much. Yeah, uh, I mean they they definitely because they've got spiders in particular. Spider monkeys have that prehensile tail. Yeah, you know as does that whole little clade of of. Can't remember the name of the the clade within the clade of New World monkeys that has the prehensile tail. They spend a lot of time hanging from. One, two, three, four, five of their limbs, effectively. Yeah. The fifth being their tail. Um, and right. they do not throw things with their tail, though. Never seen it. Never seen it. They I will. did once have one come up around me. Yeah. And uh, Put its tail over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was a very friendly. That was the last monkey in Copan. That's right. In Honduras, the yeah. southernmost uh, known city of the Maya. When we were there in the early 90s. All right, question. Now, this person did not know that they were ruining a perfectly good joke by saying softball question but the point that you are making mm. about brachiation being a precondition of quote-unquote throwing 
So monkeys, not that many monkeys a, can throw like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you need... No, but think, they could <clears throat> throw underhand like softball. Oh, yeah, that's in, that's interesting. Yeah, you yeah. Can't, can't not with, not with no, these chairs. Not in this room, but yeah. Um, but yeah. So anyway, uh, probably the the apes uh, and the brachiation is a precondition for overhand throwing, which is really yeah. the good throwing. Yeah. No, I mean probably. Uh, I I can't at the moment. I'm not seeing a lot of necessity for like throwing gourds and vegetables and other dug things at one another and for and that would probably be more of a short shorter underhanded thing anyway um so it's it's about it's going to be about hunting yeah or, you know the, the original rocks rocks sure like hurt maybe hurting animals like off a cliff and then and then with pointed sticks yeah and pointed rocks right right now I, look it takes a very special cognitive model to get mm -hmm. it right i mean if you think about that's funny i, I uh I remember making this argument in Adrian Zillman's class, a class I failed. Um, <clears throat> a, a class whose the narrative description, your narrative evaluation for which I recently found. You recently unearthed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> it's anyway, quite something. The point is, throwing throwing accurately mm -hmm. is a pretty remarkable skill. Mm -hmm. Um, because somehow you're taking an object and let's say that you've got a whole pile of rocks. You can pick up six rocks in a row. They don't weigh the same amount. And you Nor do can, they fit in the hand exactly the same way. Right. They're, they're in no way identical. And you can throw in such a way that you, you hit the same target. Right? Mm -hmm. So what exactly are, do you have to know? What do you have to be able to infer when you pick that up? Do you have to know its weight? Does accelerating your arm a certain amount mean that you don't know, need to know its weight, that it is empirically corrected for. Anyway, it's a it's an interesting skill and you need a model yeah. for basically space well beyond you mm -hmm. and, uh, and objects and how they're going to behave. You need the developmental experience of how different objects behave when you throw them. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly there's been a whole lot of selection to get us both to um, be able to model it and yeah. to be rewarded for doing it mm -hmm. right little boys love to throw things and you know hit a target you know throwing up so stick. Do some little girls. it's true non-gender conforming little girls and and little boys uh you throw a stick in the river and the stick floats down river and throwing rocks at it is just you know wow is that fun it is it is and yeah. it doesn't hurt anyone except the occasional fish you bonk on the head yeah that yeah. they were probably asking for it. I'm sure they are. Yeah. Most fish are. Yeah, most fish probably are. Yep. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This <clears throat> next question I'm sure is excellent given who is asking it, but I'm having a little bit of a hard time parsing it. So I'm going to give it a first pass, and then you'll see if you can help me out here. On the mountain of mass formation... It seems Isaac might be spared from being stabbed by the jab thanks to religious exemption. The use of aborted fetal cells, abortion unlawful. CF, the Chicago North Shore University Health System Settlement. And I don't think I know, I don't think I am aware of the Chicago North Shore University Health System Settlement. This is Echo. Yeah. Do we know wow, I really that? wish I could pick up the context of uh, yeah. of that question um communicate with us 
separately, and uh, we'll come back to this next week. Right, and I would say I two things are necessary here. One is the ability to parse the question, mm -hmm. and the other is the ability to cut the question to the relevant bits, which is like a parse snip. Seasonally inappropriate. What? <laughs> Seasonally? <laughs> Man, <clears throat> parsnips are, are good in any season. Harder to source in some seasons than others. Hence, inappropriate. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing, I, I don't know, but that. I'm guessing a parsnip is a biennial, and so the proper season is going to be the fall. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got a good, good root cellar, you can eat them into the winter. Yeah. But they're not uh, summer? No. A good root cellar. Well, we we have it's one. He's, he's got a good selection. His prices aren't that great, but it's spelled differently. Spelled differently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what a bummer. <laughs> Homosexuality in the animal kingdom? Question mark. If true, is it just that humans have witnessed highly active sex drives in certain animals? <laughs> no. Um. So this is a this is an important distinction. Yes, there's lots of homosexual behavior in the animal kingdom. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. What there isn't is obligate homosexuality, especially uh, in, well, actually, I think in either sex. Um, it's the obligate homosexuality, which is peculiar yeah. to humans. Well, um, I can think of one exception to no obligate homosexuality, um, which is in the... Nemodophorus, the whiptail lizards that have gone asexual. It's not, not it's not obligate. It is obligate because only very occasionally on um, between generations, not every individual. Right, right, by, right. You know, so it's well, obligate for whole generations, for whole lifespans, for whole coteries of mothers and daughters and granddaughters, etc. Um, I will to grant have, you that. To, to engage in pseudocopulatory behavior with other females in order to induce egg, uh, like follicle production and egg release in order right. to have... Um, asexual parthenogenetic children i will grant that your example is an obligate one but it is a an exception that proves the rule this sure. is what exception that proves the rule actually means despite how people abuse that term but the point is in that case is it obligate well it's obligate um but there's an escape hatch as there is with all of these parthenogenic creatures and the escape hatch is periodic sexual reproduction every so many generations so all right cool well was there more to the question yeah he wants to know about homosexuality in the animal kingdom so well, are you gonna, you're gonna say the usual thing uh, look, that you say okay here i'll give you a personal example um i was collecting lizards in jamaica my first research gig was uh researching lizards in jamaica there are something like six species of uh animals what we're called anals. They're now norops. Norops. Um, they're still anolids, I believe. Maybe they're guanids. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Don't anyway, um, so I was collecting them, keeping them in captivity, trying to see what I could figure out about them. And I had captured the largest species is this bright green, very large animal. And I had captured one and I had it in captivity and it wasn't doing great so I released it and I released it on a tree that I did not realize was the territory of another male and the animal ran up the tree as I released it and the other the male that owned the tree immediately copulated with it mm. um, 
So anyway, yeah, there's lots of homosexual behavior uh, that's different than homosexual creatures. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> okay, this I believe is a question from last week because we there some questions came in. It's not a question; it's a comment based on our conversation about flies. A mm -hmm. nice propel. Yeah, yeah. Draw yeah, the yeah. flies into a bathroom with a light, then close the door. That's how you collect them. Yes. That's how you concentrate them. That's how you. Yes. Yes. Um. Is having your immune system compromised by the COVID vaccine the biggest or most common adverse effect since it seems to be affecting most of the vaccinated? Thank you and much love. There's a lot we don't know. Yeah. If the question is, is it the most common effect? I think almost certainly by virtue of the fact yeah. that it seems to be, if not a universal consequence of at least the mRNA vaccines, a near universal one. Yeah, so biggest and common are actually distinct enough here. Um, you know, the, the yeah. question is, is asked almost as if those are synonyms, but like most common seems to be so like nearly universal. So presumably, yes, biggest, probably not. I mean, it can't, it can't yeah. be biggest because... Be because there are, you know, as with, as with any medical intervention, sometimes, you know, you'll die. People die, yeah, yeah. which is... Yeah. That really gets in the way of the rest of your life. It does, yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> Okay. As an atheist and a scientist, why do you believe humans have free will? Do you think other things might have it? What is its mechanism and origin? Is it simply an emergent property? Simply an emergent property. As Not opposed to what? an emergent property. Um, well, as opposed to an adaptation. So... Well, but adaptations can be emergent. Adaptation is a an emergent process, but when they say it's like, is it a coincidence or is it simply a coincidence, right? An emergent property could be that you take, you know, two things that have never been together before and you put them in the same place and it creates some thing that wasn't your intention. Mm -hmm. Adaptation is something that's been favored for the fact that it had this property. So the question is, is free will there as a byproduct or is free will there oh, okay. as okay. an adaptive force? Mm -hmm. So I think this question is simpler than most people think. That effectively, the a universe in which we don't have any free will is a universe that does not make sense. And it's not that it couldn't exist. It's not that some alien race couldn't have created a uh, computer program in some elaborate computer environment in which we all walked around with the illusion that we had free will, mm -hmm. but were absolutely trapped. And the illusion was for, they wanted us to have it for some reason. Yep. That's completely inconsistent with evolution. We have a subjective experience of the universe. We often have two things in front of us, and we debate which thing to choose. Sam Harris would say, yes, but what are you choosing on the basis of? You're choosing on the basis of values and fears and things like that, and those things come from somewhere, so are you really free? And my answer to this, which I believe I lost the argument to Sam when Sam was on dark horse though i still think he's wrong i think he won the argument because he's a very formidable debater and <laughs> his point is not um without it there are many uh meritorious points along the way though i think his conclusion is wrong mm -hmm. but um <clears throat> the fact of evolution 
requires different outcomes to be possible. That a universe in which every outcome of every interaction was preordained from the first moments of the universe is not a sensible universe because there would be no reason for evolution to create the appearance of competition, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point is, if there's no, if we live in a completely deterministic universe, then all the outcomes are preordained. The terror that a creature feels as it runs away from its predator is pointless if it's just a means to an end to get it to unsuccessfully run away, right? Mm -hmm. So my point is, look, I can't say for sure that we don't live in a deterministic universe, but I can say that a deterministic universe would be a very bizarre one. It would mm -hmm. be much more bizarre than one in which, for whatever reason, Heisenberg, presumably, there is variability in what can happen. It wasn't all preordained. And one of the manifestations of this is free will, in which we are actually able to choose. However, the fact that there, to me, appears to be free will, actual free will at our disposal, does not say that there is nearly as much of it as people think, right? We are not very free. So I think Sam Harris has a mm. point, which is that we are highly, highly constrained. And I agree with him in that. But... We are not totally constrained, and that's the question. Is is the amount of free will not very much, or is it zero? And my answer would be a universe in which it's zero would be a very strange place indeed. It would make a mockery of subjective experience. There'd be no point in having it. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, that doesn't nail it down. That just says uh, you've... It says that the, the argument that we have no free will is a philosophical loser because it makes... A more complicated universe rather than a less complicated universe All right it's it's an occam's railer razor failure yeah i think that's right and um actually the next question fits with that you confer supreme agency to evolution to the point of anthropomorphization which i mispronounced but why and so a i, I would say no no we don't um but uh but the reason it might look that way is precisely one in which if you are if you are not averse to complexifying your explanations of the universe you might see um evolution as a kind of you know an anthropomorphization of of the systems that it's explaining and you know no actually occam's razor suggests that um that this is what explains what we're seeing and it's it's the opposite of anthropomorphization. I can't even say it. Anthrop anthropomorphic. Okay, it's misspelled as part of why. Like I have the visual and I can't look at that because it's there's a bunch of letters missing. Anthropomorphization. Yeah, which sounds wrong. It, it sounds does. like there's a syllable missing. It's not a it's not a well honed word. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would argue that central to this is a language problem. Okay. Our language was built to do things like explain human motivations. It was not built to explain processes like evolution it is almost impossible if you relegate yourself to explaining evolution as it actually happens without mm -hmm. anthropomorphizing you will talk yourself in circles trying to say perfectly obvious things oh i see okay so <clears throat> there will there will be an appearance of right. ascribing intent like. to evolution and you know for a while you know when we're actually teaching a class for a while we'll say you know i'm gonna use the shorthand and you know and, and we don't anymore because you just you, you can't every time you get up 
Right. And and Dawkins has this right. He says, it is important that you are always able to go from your shorthand version back to the rigorous version if you need to. But if you think about it, you know, if you say even something obvious like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a tree has leaves to capture sunlight, right? Mm -hmm. That sounds like the tree is trying to catch something. The tree's not trying to do anything. The point is the ancestors of the tree that happened to have cells with photosynthetic capacity arrayed in a way that fell where the sunlight came through the canopy had more chemical energy at their disposal. Even the word disposal, I've now tripped over it again. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, it's frankly, it's also anthropomorphic to say that that language is anthropomorphic. Because it's imagining that anything with desire or anything with consciousness is a human is a human thing, so it's you know it's it's actually revealing the self centeredness, the anthropomorphic nature of the person accusing the explanation of being anthropomorphic very right. often. Well, really, it's a blind watchmaker issue, which mm. is that you know the blind the watchmaker is blind, right? That's kind of the point. Is that when you find a watch on the ground, it implies a watchmaker. In this case, the watchmaker is actually a process that is blind, mm-hmm. um, and in this case, the point is you will do far, you will understand far more about the strange and lovely world that you've been born into if you allow yourself to imagine that creatures are trying to get their genes into the future, for example, mm-hmm. right? It is very efficient and intuitive to say that essentially all of the patterns that are common to creatures, right? If you see a species of tree that typically has a tendency to do X, Y, and Z, that it is doing that to get its genes into the future, you will be far better off just allowing yourself to say that, even though it's not precise, right. than yep. preventing yourself from saying it. You'll be far more confused if you hold yourself to saying only things that are uh, perfectly precise and true. Um, so something like that. Good. <clears throat> okay. If climate change is driven by solar and geologic activity rather than human action, what do we do then? Say we spend $100 trillion globally on fusion, but it's still 100 plus years away. What then? Monetary waste matters too. Wait, can you go back to the beginning of the question? If climate change is driven by solar or geological activity rather than human action, what do we do then? Well, here's, here's the way I would parse the question. If it is due to long-standing processes that are really not about people, mm-hmm. that's good news. Okay, because what it means is the really frightening ways this could unfold, like the clathrate gun hypothesis, are unlikely to, because the Earth will already have been through this. If this is human-generated and therefore novel, I will say you know, but. There have you know we are in what is this in the sixth major extinction event on Earth. So the Earth having been through this, whatever this is, again does not necessarily mean that uh, life can mostly survive it. Even even if the climate change that is actually truly being observed were not anthropogenic. Depends what those what those. Uh, previous extinctions were right. I mean, if they're mm-hmm. comets from outer space, that's a very different puzzle. Well, yeah, I don't, there's very little suggestion that 
all five of the previous major extinction events. No, they, they weren't. But the question is, were they the result of an ongoing fluctuating process or were they the result of some sort of catastrophic breakage in the normal, right? If climate change is the result of fluctuations that are always ongoing and they're ongoing now, then the point is we've got a system that is robust to those things. It is not robust to a comet coming out of nowhere. Right, because but I mean, I guess you're picking. It could be solar or geological activity that's not just ongoing stuff, but but that is that very unlikely. That's that's it's not impossible that there could be a new geological process. But what are the chances? Or not just not new, <clears throat> but you know, just a uh, a periodic, an episodic thing. That's that happens. my point. If it is a periodic, episodic thing that happens, then the point is the system is built for it. It is the novelty that is the hazard, and the novelty can be natural novelty in the form of uh, an object from deep space, or it can be human-generated novelty, but that's the thing to fear. And so the reason that I do fear the human-generated uh, climate change has to do with frozen methane in the Arctic. The chances that we get to some point at which it starts self-facilitating its own release and that the amount of it that gets released in that positive feedback process is so great that it doesn't leave a functional world, right? Um, I think that that's pretty likely. And so what it means is we should work very hard to control it. Now, the problem is that there's an artificial dichotomy in the question as it's been posed, which is because the chemistry... Right. The chemistry of, of global warming is very simple. It's a very long-standing uh, piece of knowledge and very easy to, easy to demonstrate that CO2 and methane trap heat. Right. So let's say that we've got a solar process, which we undoubtedly do. It doesn't mean that it's in that phase now, but mm -hmm. we've got a solar process that's natural and fluctuating. We've got geologic processes that are natural and fluctuating. And we got humans mucking about releasing millions of years worth of stored carbon in you know in a couple of centuries mm -hmm. right those things compound each other and so the point is maybe the natural part of it is something that would produce a tolerable effect but the compounded nature of those things combined might go somewhere new and function like yep. you know like a, an object from deep space indeed all right how long have we been at it Zach? Just about an hour. Okay, let's do it. We got a lot of questions. Uh, let me do a couple more, okay? Uh, first couple comments here. Eerie, there was a murder in my town a couple of days ago. A young guy who had been arrested and released a number of times. Uh, next comment. I got my Pfizer shirt in the mail this morning, and Joe Biden tests positive for COVID-19 again. I guess the breakthroughs never stop. Thanks. Look up Wikipedia is a tertiary... Look up Wikipedia is a tertiary source. Primary sources are original research. Secondary sources are reliable sources, which is the same thing as mainstream media. Wikipedia rules let it write only about what appears in reliable sources and therefore captured. Mm. That's interesting. That is interesting. <clears throat> um, what do you make of so many monkeypox survivors being HIV positive, 41%, or on... PREP, which I looked up, that's pre-exposure prophylaxis, which the person writing the question says is 74%. So again, what do you make of so many monkeypox survivors being HIV positive, 41%, or on pre-exposure 
prophylaxis. Pre exposure to uh, what? HIV. HIV pre exposure prophylaxis. Yeah. Um, so I don't that that may just be consistent with uh, this is about this is about gay men. Yeah. Right. This is this is a this is uh, transmitting through homosexual male sex yeah. like we know other like like HIV does. Right. Um, so that that seems like the most likely thing. Um, but obviously, the person asking the question is intimating that there might be a relationship with exposure either to HIV or to whatever is in the pre-exposure yeah. prophylaxis. Now, those are obviously statistically separable. If yes. you set out to test it, it's very easy. Hundred percent. But I don't like. Right. I've never seen we these numbers know. before. We I don't, don't know, know. Yeah. What, what those numbers mean. Yeah. So I think neither you nor I want to touch it until we've seen whether those numbers are general correlations or whether they have yeah. already controlled yeah the, the most obvious totally separable but the most obvious hypothesis until we know is that this is just about this in fact being uh you know a, a, a virus uh, that is most easily transmitted through gay yeah, sex is a, is a highly non-random virus yeah. and therefore is going to find other patterns right lodging genes in the future is a side effect People want children over clones or immortality. Genes really want relative improvement. And then we got a winky smiley face. I think it's I think it's sort of tongue in cheek. It's tongue in cheek. Look, <clears throat> lodging genes in the future is in its own way a side effect, but the point is almost all of your cognitive processes which are the core of your life, right? Produce mm -hmm. that as a byproduct. And the weird thing is to recognize that that byproduct effect is the entire reason that adaptation created those structures. Yeah. Okay, we got uh, three more questions. I mean, we got a lot more than that, but we're going to do three more. When and why did monogamy become a thing in the human race? Mm. Love you both. Well, I'm going to make my, uh, my argument for this. Monogamy is an adaptation to certain conditions, as is polygyny, right? As is promiscuity. Now, the question is, are the conditions present that favor this? Now, what I would argue is that monogamy was definitely not the most common system, but that it became arguably the most common system. That is to say, most people... Or live in societies that are at least nominally monogamous. None of those societies are perfectly monogamous, as no animal that we know of that is monogamous is perfectly monogamous. And indeed, in non-human animals, uh, researchers uh, who study this sort of thing always uh, talk about the separation between genetic and social monogamy. Uh, right. There's, you know, there's there's often near perfect social monogamy, and still one or both partners uh, in this species will tend to cheat. Um, genetically. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the argument, though, is what would favor the um, elaboration of monogamy, the spreading of monogamy? And I will argue it is rapid population growth. When lineages are competing with each other, the expansion of a lineage favors monogamy because <clears throat> other systems sideline most males from contributing to the raising of offspring. The thing that limits 
how fast a population can grow is how many adults are contributing to the extremely expensive process of raising human babies. Monogamy brings the maximum number of those um, adults into the process because they have a genetic interest in contributing. Mm -hmm. And so I would argue it is no accident that the age of exploration saw the flourishing of monogamous lineages which spread and had their populations massively increase on, for example, new land masses. And so the pattern, the prediction, is that anywhere in history, in prehistory, in, uh, in human prehistory, that we see a population go through rapid expansion, you will see a tendency towards monogamy at the point that carrying capacity for whatever land mass or opportunity has already has been reached, you will see the breakdown in that monogamy. I believe that's where we are now. And it's part of why we're seeing all of the craziness around sex that we are seeing. And the uh, final piece of that argument is that actually monogamy, whether or not it is the best way to get your genes into the future, whether or not we are in an expansion phase or a stable phase, um, is still the best thing for civilization. It's the best system for people. It is the best system for children. And so we should be seeking to stabilize monogamy, even if we have reached the phase in population uh, growth that would ordinarily cause it to break down. Good. Dr. Candace Naiman, age 27, was the fifth Toronto doc to die this month. She died after collapsing during a triathlon. Can we ask some questions now? Yeah, I saw this. <clears throat> the other four were all uh, male doctors, a little older than her. At least a couple of them were um, late 40s, 50. Um, but all of them appeared to be in very good health. And in no case, can you say? Uh, one, no, one of them might have been, one of them might have had cancer, actually. Uh, but, sorry. But nonetheless, we, we're stuck in the problem where... In any particular case, you could have a freak occurrence. Could yep. be more than one. Could yep. be all of them. But the chances that this is anomalous are pretty high. And what we're being prevented from doing is rigorously addressing the question. Yep. And I will say that the pattern, if you take the hypothesis that we deployed some months ago about why the mRNA vaccines in particular were likely to cause myocarditis, that basically because they get taken up arbitrarily by cells that were never intended to take them up. Those cells get targeted by the immune system yep. because the immune system mistakes them for virally infected cells. The immune system kills those cells. <clears throat> that is basically going to be necrotic damage to whatever organ it's happened in. If it's a little necrotic damage in your liver, you probably get away with it. If it's a little necrotic damage in your heart, you may get away with it. But let's say you're an athlete. You've got a little necrotic damage in your heart because the vaccine got taken up by some heart cells. You do okay until you push yourself past some limit that you haven't seen in the last year. Yep. And the point is, oh, that's a limit beyond which you can't, you can't function. And this would be the pattern. You would see both people anomalously dying yep. just at points that are inexplicable. And you would see mm -hmm. athletes dying during competition. Yeah, during a triathlon, 27-year-old, yep. extremely healthy, extremely active young woman Yep, died during a triathlon. It's yep. tragic. It is. It's tragic. And obviously, 
and only an insane society wouldn't be interested in figuring out if there was a pattern because the, uh, the news article I read about it, um, some Toronto newspaper, uh, simply had a, like a one sentence press release from the hospital, uh, saying it's not related to the vaccine. Like it isn't it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's the thing you need to communicate and on what basis could you possibly know? On what basis could you possibly know? And how many people are you going to put in jeopardy? Like, because if this is what's going on, right, it is almost certainly true that there's some period of time over which you are maximally vulnerable, right? And that there's a way, even if you've had this damage, that you could rationally approach your life that would reduce the chances that you don't survive. And the problem is if you tell people, oh, that person died, it had nothing to do with the vaccine that you also got, then they will not have the rational response, which is, is there anything I can do? Can I mitigate the risks to myself? Or right. is that not part of a public health policy? Right, exactly. Really? Um, final question. Is it true that the chupacabra is the descendant of a wolf and coyote? I've never heard this before. A wolf and coyote? What does that have to do with a goat? I don't know. Well, it's a goat eater. It's a goat sucker. Oh, sucker. Yeah. Um, It's a goat sucker. You're right. It is draining goats of blood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've never heard that before. But, um, I mean, what are they called? Koi koi wolves. Koi wolves. That sounds like a fish. Koi um, exist. So, I mean, we know that they can. Yeah, the red wolf. Red wolf is it, so. What, what the the suggestion here was the hybrid between a wolf and a coyote. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that isn't that the explanation for red wolves? I don't know. I don't know. I think it is. I mean, C O Y W O L F. I don't know how to pronounce it. Is like a known hybrid thing. Well, it is possible that I'm going to get caught off guard by the biology that I paid incomplete attention to, but I believe that red wolves are now understood to be the result of a hybridization event, and I thought it was between wolves and coyotes. We are now... Some scientists believe that the red wolf, which once roamed much of the southeast, is in fact a coyote hybrid with wolves and not a separate species. All right. Some so I, scientists some believe. Scientists, some of them are sitting next well, to wait me. Wait a second. Are these scientists who distribute malinformation, or are these blue team sanctioned scientists? How much consensus do they believe in? Wow, and do they follow the economics? Um, so what what I'm finding in Google Scholar is um, that red wolves and coyotes can hybridize, and also that red wolves and wolves can hybridize, both of which suggest something, although if we also separately know that wolves and coyotes can hybridize, it doesn't necessarily say anything. I thought um, this was oh, nailed down. Uh, the problematic red wolf. Oh, no, that's published in Scientific American. Why is that showing up here? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Isn't that great? The red wolf is not a hybrid we have from conservation biology in 1992. Oh, 90, no, um, no, I'm talking about more recent stuff than that. Yeah, I don't know. I thought this was nailed down in the early 2000s. Dynamics of hybridization, integration in red wolves and coyotes. I don't know, man. All right, well... Reviving ghost alleles, genetically admixed coyotes along the American Gulf Coast are critical for saving the endangered red wolf. Yeah. Yeah. So it does raise a question. Chupacabra. Um, <clears throat> so chupacabra, for those unfamiliar, is, well, I actually, I'd never run into it until we started traveling in Latin America. 
um, is is a a story of a of a of a monster that roams at night and uh, is is scary and dangerous. An exsanguinating monster. Exsanguinating blood free corpses. Mostly of on goats. The countryside. Yeah. Yes. Mostly of goats. I mean, you know. But used to scare children, I think. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's not a very nice story. No. no. So eat your vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I think that did it. Yep. yep. That's it. That's that's the way that Brett is now going to end all of these episodes. So, so eat, eat your vegetables. Your eat your vegetables. You know, I I wouldn't mind having a catchphrase, but I don't think that can be it. No. No. No, I don't think I don't think so. So we will be back next week. Join us then. Who knows what will have happened by then? Yeah. It's really hard to say. Probably everything. Probably everything will have happened by then. Uh, in the meantime, consider joining us uh, at my Patreon tomorrow, uh, Sunday, July 20, uh, 20, July 31st uh, at 11 a.m. We'll be doing a private Q&A, and we'll leave it up uh, for those of you who have, who have joined to listen to afterwards if you can't join us live. Join Brett's Patreon uh, at one of the higher dollar amounts. And just uh, generally be present and share what we're doing here with other people if you think that they can handle it. Yeah, do the thing and do it well. No, it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Be good to the ones you love. Eat good food and get outside. Be well, everyone.